Welcome to Startup the Science, a podcast by Enam, the Innovation Network for Advanced Materials. Enam brings together companies, researchers, and investors working in the advanced materials space for the purposes of knowledge sharing and collaboration. We do this through our programs, events, and initiatives like the podcast you are listening to. In this podcast, we interview inspirational founders, experts, and investors and get a closer look at what they do. This is your host, Tahad, and let's start up the science. Hello and welcome to all of our listeners. We're back with another thrilling episode, this time exploring the realms of science and innovation in both academia and industry. Today's guest, Dr. David Giltner, is no stranger to either of these, and he's one of the most qualified people to shed light on the subject. With a BS and PhD in physics, David has over 20 years of experience turning cutting-edge technologies into commercial products in fields such as optical communications, remote sensing, and scientific instrumentation. He's authored two excellent books, Turning Science into Things People Need, and the very aptly named It's a Game, Not a Formula. In 2017, he founded Turning Science, which assists PhDs transitioning from academia to industry. Welcome to Start Up the Science, David. We're very happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here, Taha. Perfect. Let's get started. So, David, can you share the story behind the creation of Turning Science and what was your inspiration for supporting PhDs in their transition to industry? Yeah, absolutely. It really came from my own story. As you mentioned, I have a PhD in physics. And right up to about the last year of my PhD career, I was just following the traditional path. You know, if you think about how do we start our careers, for me and many of us, it's the coursework that you enjoy. I enjoyed science, so I declared physics as a major as an undergraduate. I realized if I wanted to be a scientist, I better get a PhD. But after watching the other professors and my advisor for five years as a graduate student, I decided that wasn't actually the career I wanted after all. And in my final year, my PhD, I decided I would go into industry because that was the other option. But I also realized quickly I knew nothing about that. I still remember the conversation with my advisor when I told her I wanted to go to industry. She says, well, okay, you know, if you want a postdoc, I can hook you up. I can get you a great one. But if you want to go into industry, you are on your own because I don't know a thing about it. I'd love to help you, but I know nobody there. And that started that journey of trying to figure out, wow, how do I do this? And I realized it's a different environment. I had no idea how to meet people, how to get a job. And once I was there, the next maybe four or five years was learning how different it is than academic research. I was continually reminded, oh, wait, I'm not quite doing this the way they play the game here and learning how to do it. So that is the inspiration, really. I want to bring everything I've learned now, as, as you mentioned, more than 20 years in industry, bring everything I've learned to people who are where I was. Well, really, I work with kind of all ranges, but it's starting from working on their PhDs and wanting to go into industry all the way up into people in industry and help them play that game better, help them do a better job. I see. And how has that experience been so far for you? Is it, I imagine it must be very rewarding. It's very rewarding. You know, I started after I wrote my first book, just doing it as a side project, right? I thought it would be great to have a book and start a speaking gig, a speaking circuit. But I found that to be so rewarding. I started expanding it, started being invited internationally to speak. And in 2017, as you mentioned, you know, I found it so rewarding. I thought, I wonder if I can do this full time as a real gig, because there's certainly a value, certainly a need for it. 
I felt I was making a difference. And I say now it's some of the most, without question, the most rewarding work I've ever done. That's great to so, hear. Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, maybe a bit more about your work at Turning Science. So how have you seen the relationship between academia and industry change since 2017? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's certainly getting better. I think there's no question about it. It's hard as, as a scientist, I think, well, is it how much of it is an actual change and how much of it is my awareness of it as I learn more? But <laughs> put that aside. I definitely think it's changing. There is more of an acceptance of industry in academia because classically, you know, especially in the pure sciences, industry has always been, you know, like, well, that's not where real scientists go. It's very unfortunate and it's not at all true. It's by, you know, hardly true at all. Mm -hmm. There's a much better recognition in some institutions of that. A lot more cooperation, more collaboration, more preparation for their graduating students for a career in industry. At the same time, though, unfortunately, there are many institutions that really have not changed that focus yet. You know, I visit a lot of universities as I travel, and some are very positive on industry and really do a great job of embracing it. Uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, the startup culture has really grown a lot in the last decade Absolutely. around the globe. But there are plenty of universities that still think that PhDs are trained to replace faculty. And that's really their main purpose. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work. The short answer would be lots of progress, but there's lots to do. <laughs> right. And in terms of from the point of view of industry, have you seen anything change in terms of industry, especially in regards to these current changes by academia? Has that impacted industry at all? Yeah, I think so. You know, classically, there is a there is a challenge. It's a different environment. And so when PhD scientists go into industry, Many, much of industry, many managers, executives have noticed that gap that, you know, well, the science, we train scientists to be academics and industry is different. But again, it's, it's hit and miss. Some are certainly seeing that change. They realize that the preparations that the universities that embrace industry and are doing better, they see that difference. Right. And in terms of while we're talking about this difference, what are the key differences between academia and industry in terms of how their goals vary? Yeah, so I like to talk about five. I've broken it down to five, but the first one is really the most important. And the, that's the difference that academia or academic research specifically is about generating knowledge. It's about creating knowledge. That's what we do. We learn new things mm -hmm. about the universe in general, and we document them in publications. But industry is about creating profit. Companies need investors. They have investors uh, of some type, and those investors are looking for a return. And if that company wants to be in business next year, mm -hmm. uh, they need to turn a profit. And that Absolutely. really drives everything else. So kind of the next level from that is, while academia is about getting a complete understanding, fully understanding everything, when you defend your PhD, thesis, your dissertation, you certainly want to fully understand it because you have a committee asking questions. Industry is about results and, you know, their specifications, their requirements, and the goal is to get to those results and get to them fast. Speed is the next thing that's important. So fast results are, are the way to get there. Understanding and certainty are what are key in academic research. So understanding and certainty on the academic side, fast results on the industry side. But then there are other differences that relate to kind of the people side of it. Mm -hmm. Academia tends to be a very independent endeavor. 
you know, a professor builds a career of theirs. Yes, they have a team of PhDs and postdocs, but it's they build it on the back of what they have accomplished, their credentials and their accomplishments, whereas industry is always a team effort. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a parallel approach. You don't want one expert who builds knowledge. You want a bunch of people who have their own expertise. And as a team, they move forward to get those fast results. And then the final thing is, if you're going for certainty and understanding, proof is the way you make progress and you, you convince people. Mm -hmm. In industry where it's a team environment, where I like to say a lot of questions don't have a right answer, it's persuasion. You can't necessarily prove things to a team of people who aren't scientists and you have to move forward fast enough. Sometimes you have to make decisions when you don't have all the data, you mm -hmm. don't know the right answer. That's what a lot of business is about. So it becomes persuasion rather than proof. Right. So those are the big differences that I see. I see. I mean, just in terms of the last point you made in persuasion, I think there's a key sort of feeling, especially among scientists, that persuasion kind of means that you're lying about your yeah. results. And mm -hmm. that's that's very clearly not the case when you talk about business. I think in in science, we're dealing with a lot of certainty and we're dealing with these exact sort of things. With business, it's a bit vague right. and a bit abstract. And that really changes the way you you look at persuasion and being able to communicate properly. Yeah, I mean, you hit it exactly. In an environment where you're going for certainty, where there's a single right answer, that's really what you're looking for in science, right? Mm -hmm. Something that, you know, a formula approach, I like to say, yep. where you figured it out and every time you do it, it works. Mm -hmm. Okay, proof is the thing. And if you have to persuade somebody, there's a feeling like, wait, are you not sure of your data? Yep. Just lay it out. Let the data do its, its work. Let the mm -hmm. data speak for itself. That is the academic research approach. That's the way it should be done. But in industry, First of all, many people wouldn't understand your proof if you could do that mm -hmm. because they're not scientists. Yeah. But the bigger issue is many because of the speed that you need to get results with, many times you have to move forward when you don't know the right answer. You're just trying to find a solution that works, a solution for the customer and not a right answer. And so working to get something that you can prove is often takes way too long. You just need to find something that will probably work and then you move forward to show that it will. But there are many stages along the way where you can't prove, you don't know yet. It's more of a, I think this is the best way forward. Let's move forward and see mm -hmm. if it works. So you're not lying to anyone. You're not trying to force them into something they don't want to do. Those are bad ideas of what persuasion is. You're simply trying to help them see what you see. Mm -hmm. yep. Because if you honestly think full integrity, this is the best way forward. I don't know for sure. I'm not certain, but I think based on my expertise, this is the best way forward. All you need to do is help them see the way you see it. And that is something we can do with full honesty and full integrity. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So moving on, I'm very curious about your book. It's a game, not a formula. As I mentioned before, it's very aptly named. And I think a lot of scientists would benefit by thinking of it along these lines. What are some main takeaways from your book regarding the transition from academia to industry? Yeah. Well, thank you. So the first is the title. <laughs> I mean, the title itself became a mnemonic for me. And I remember the day I decided, wait, this, I was working on the book and I decided, no, this needs to be the title of the book because I use it so much myself. You know, I still have to remind myself what the game is, what the rules of the game are, and when I need to think that way rather than think in terms of, you know, certainty and proof, right? And, and so it's that takeaway. This is a game, not a formula. 
But to go below that and say, well, what are the key elements of that, the key takeaways? One is, I mentioned it already, a lot of questions, a lot of issues don't have a single right answer. Mm -hmm. We are we are trained to find the right answer, right? That's the idea that eventually it will end up in a paper, maybe even a textbook, a, a formula, a, a theory, a something. That's the way science should work. But in the private sector, many things we do are moving forward fast, trying to find a solution. And we need to think not in terms of the right answer, but finding a way that we can win. Right. So that's the first thing. Few single, you know, there's rarely a single right answer. The second thing is that it requires risk. Playing the industry game involves making decisions, taking actions where you don't know what the outcome will be. I think as PhD scientists, we get used to using our training and our intelligence to mitigate risk, right? Mm -hmm. We can study, we can analyze until we're pretty certain and we don't have to speak up until we are certain. You don't publish a paper until you are pretty sure that it's correct, right? Yep. It's not that way in industry. Moving quickly, finding solutions. Many times you're asked for a recommendation before you know. Companies have to take a chance with a product platform and they don't know for sure yet that it will work or not. You work towards that. You're taking a risk, just like in a game. You have to shoot, you may miss the goal. You have to play your cards, your hand in cards, you may lose. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I like to say knowledge isn't the only thing we, we get used to hearing, we hear knowledge is power. Well, actually applied knowledge is power. You know, knowledge alone is, is not enough. You have to take those actions that have risk. Yep. To go back to the game analogy, I like to say that in a game, knowing the rules better than anyone does not make you an expert player, right? Yep. That's how you become a ref, a referee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so do you want to be a referee or do you want to score points? So those are the big takeaways. And I think, you know, if, if people go away just remembering those, mm -hmm. that helps a lot. Of course, in my book, I have a lot more detail beyond that. But just that top level, hey, remember, it's a game, not a formula. Stop looking for the right answer. Get out there, play the game and take some risks because that's the way you win. Definitely. I mean, thank you for the insight. I think it's a very key way to change your thinking. And it's, it's very, very helpful during this transition which can be difficult for some people at some times. A small side note for our listeners here, I would highly recommend reading David's book. It's a game, not a formula. It is absolutely amazing because David can both put himself into the mindset of a scientist as well as an entrepreneur. And it's very, very cool to be able to see the insights that come out of that. So yeah, moving on, how does industry actually perceive PhDs and academics? Is it mostly positive, mostly negative? What are their key concerns? Great question. So I would say there's a range. You know, obviously, much of industry realizes the value of PhD scientists, and that's why they bring them in. I have come across some frustration among some of the executives. I'll say the ones that really know how to play the game, because a lot of PhD scientists come in not understanding that game yet. They absolutely have skills, knowledge that is valuable. No question about that. But sometimes the fact that they haven't yet realized that it's a game, that's where the disconnect is. You know, it's, it's absolutely fixable, but that's where some of it is. And so some of the key things they talk about, it's easy. And before I say this, I struggled with this myself, right? Again, these come directly from my story. It's easy to want to continue focusing on things that are interesting just like you could do in academic research. And this is one of the concerns executives have. In a company, we need you to focus on the results that we need for our customer. 
right? And so there's a tendency to say, well, the PhD scientist struggles to focus on what really matters. They're, you know, interested, they find so many interesting things and they want to head off on some tangent like they could do in academic research. It doesn't work so well in a company. That's another thing. They kind of feel like they're still in an environment where they have to prove they're smart because that's exactly what graduate school is. That's Mm -hmm. certainly what my experience was, right? I joke that it's an environment where anytime you speak up, there will always be five other PhDs ready to tell you if you said it right or not. You know, (laughs) this is not the industry environment. Typically, you don't have to prove that you are the smartest. And in fact, it's a team environment where learning from others Mm -hmm. is really valuable. And, you know, executives see that gap sometimes until the scientist learns to learn from the technician, because they may have some great things to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing, I sort of mentioned it already, we can be slow to decide. You know, there's a lot of questions that don't really have right answers. Mm -hmm. And if we take the science approach where we keep studying it and collecting data, looking for the right answer, we're going to take too long. We need to start to be comfortable getting to where we think this is a pretty good idea and we start moving forward and see if it works rather than continue to analyze it. So those are the big things, focusing on what really matters, Mm -hmm. not feeling like we have to be the smartest in the room and being quick to decide, being comfortable deciding when we may not have all the data that we that we need. Right. Thank you so much for that. I would like to dwell on this a bit more and perhaps maybe also take a look at some skills or habits that academia encourages that actually work in a PhD's favor when they move into industry. Are there any such skills? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole list of, you know, one of the things I talk about in my workshops, we have a module where we walk through what are some of the strengths of a scientist that work really, really well. A big one, we are great problem solvers. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean, as a physicist, physicists tend to think of mathematical problems, and sure, that's part of it. But, you know, if you've gotten to if you've completed your PhD dissertation, your project, you've solved lots of problems of all sorts, right? Mm -hmm. We scientists are very good at systematically breaking a problem down and solving it, that critical thinking. That is absolutely valuable Mm -hmm. in the private sector. We persevere. You know, we've probably struggled through a lot of things and we keep going. We don't give up easily. That's really important. Mm -hmm. We are great independent learners. We can learn on our own. That is very valuable. Analytical, we're adaptable. We tend to have a pretty broad technical background Mm -hmm. as a scientist, even if, you know, while I like to joke as a physicist, we study everything. But, you know, anyone who's completed a PhD dissertation probably had to learn more than just their chemistry or biology or physics, you know. And, And of course, while many projects are now multidisciplinary, too. We often have great hands-on skills. We can get into the lab if we're an experimentalist and and build something or do something. All of those have value in the private sector. Okay, that's that's a very, very good point and very insightful indeed. Yep, so my next question would probably be from the other side. What are some skills and habits that actually work against PhDs when they transition? We touched upon this a bit already, but really to nail down and get to the problem at its core, I'd really like some insight on that. Well, that's actually a great question because my answer is going to be some of those same things, Mm -hmm. right? Skills that are valuable, but sometimes can work against us. So take perseverance Mm -hmm. is a good one, right? There is real value in not giving up when you hit a hard problem and continuing and getting to the end. A lot of value in that. And that's what most of us demonstrated in our PhD dissertations. But in the industry environment where speed and results are important, if you spend too long doing that, 
and usually too long is not very long, without good looking for help, that can be a problem. Mm -hmm. You have to temper that habit. It's, it's great to persevere, but you also need to realize when, hey, I'm not making progress fast enough. I need to find somebody else who helps me. And that's not really a habit we tend to pick up during our PhDs. We tend to have this mentality of we need to do it ourselves. I need to do it alone. There's real value in the PhD. That's the hallmark of it is that we can do it on our own. Mm -hmm. But when we get into industry, we have to break that habit. Some of that is absolutely valuable, but we need to know when to go ask for help because that is, that is not at all a sign of weakness in the private sector, mm -hmm. right? That is encouraged. Yep. If you, you know, as a PhD scientist, if you run into something you don't know and you go out and you find help quickly and get through it, your boss is not going to think, oh, they didn't know it themselves. They're going to think, excellent. You were resourceful and you solved the problem quickly. You get results. They will think you are really smart and capable. And that's what matters. Yep. Independent learners, another one. I mentioned that. I mean, it's great that we can learn everything ourselves, but we don't have six months to study some new problem and become an expert before we start to take action. Mm -hmm. Again, we have to look for help from other people and we can learn from them and we can become knowledgeable on it. But, you know, those are two good examples of, of, I like to think of it as different mindsets. You know, there's kind of the academic mindset, which I tend to call, you probably saw it in the book, the research mindset. And then there's the industry mindset, which is more the development mindset. And what it's really about is knowing when to use both of them. Right. PhD scientists are smart. We can figure out. The research mindset is required here. I'm looking for certainty. I have to be thorough and get a complete understanding. And here I need to move quickly and get results. And so I shift to looking for, you know, getting help and, and persuasion and teamwork. Well, in a hypothetical situation where we're comparing two PhDs, one working in a lab group by themselves and another in perhaps a group that is collaborating with another group, I imagine that must help in terms of developing these teamwork skills, being able to ask for support and so on. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the one of the things I give seminars and workshops on is how to prepare either to students how to prepare when you're a graduate student or to faculty how to prepare your PhD students for industry. Mm -hmm. Teamwork is absolutely one of them, encouraging them to work together. You know, I thought I worked in a team because I worked with other people in a lab during my PhD work, but in the end, the results completely and solely depended on what I did. It is possible for somebody to complete a PhD that where they are responsible for it, but still use the support of other people. And it's a great way to get that habit of, hey, I need to rely on others and they can help me and I can help them. Mm -hmm. And as a team, we grow. One of the things I like to do, actually, is I like to encourage them to think of their research group like you would a company. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, I have to get my PhD done. I have to get my papers published. But what can I do to help the group as a whole? How does my work impact them? Because we all benefit if the group grows. That's the kind of thinking that is in a company that is, is common in a company. And that's a great habit to start as early as possible. Maybe to go to the other side of the spectrum a bit, is there anything you think that industry might be able to change to really support these PhDs as they transition over? Yeah, so there are a few things. First of all, broadly speaking, helping them understand the game because you know, again that's what I think is great, so great about that mnemonic. It's a game not a formula because I think much of industry doesn't necessarily appreciate where the PhD scientist is coming from either. And if they realize, "Oh, we just need to help them understand the game." Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not about learning a bunch of new skills and it, 
it's just a matter of helping them understand the game. Mm-hmm. In any game, if you bring a new player in, they may have skills, but you have to teach them how the game is played. Yep. So I think that is helpful. Mentorship can be a big part of that, you know, and helping them see that cooperation is the thing and they don't need to be smart. I think customer visits are good. Mm-hmm. Bringing, that was a big thing for me. My, I had a great manager early in my career. And he encouraged me to go with the sales team to visit customers. And, you know, the products were fairly complex. And so they needed somebody to explain them to them how they worked. But it was a great experience in seeing, well, what matters, Mm -hmm. right? What are the results that we're working for? So not just in a lab. Mm -hmm. Um, And well, I'll just say the other thing they can do is, you know, companies can do is, is I can help them with this. (laughs) This is what I do. So they can bring me in. To talk to not just the scientists, but also the executives. Mm -hmm. I like to think of it as there are really two cultures, right? You've got the technical culture that was brought up in an academic environment Mm -hmm. through, you know, many years of schooling to get the skills and the knowledge and things that are so important. The business side, the executives, the salespeople, the finance people, they tended to be groomed, you know, probably bachelors, maybe an MBA among them, but they got out there. They've been playing the game for a longer time. You basically have two cultures Mm -hmm. and helping those cultures understand each other. You know, uh, we see this in in culture differences around the globe in all different capacities, right? If you help them understand each other, how they communicate, why they think the way they do, that goes a really long way to helping them communicate better. Because it instead of frustration and why do they think this way? Why do they do that? It becomes an, oh, okay, I understand completely why these habits might've developed along the way to developing the skills that we need so much. Mm -hmm. And that's a much better cooperative uh, environment. Now you've got them working as a team instead of two cultures trying to get to the same goals. They don't even see the same way. Absolutely. No, that's a very, very interesting point. I do think that there is a little bit of being too close to the problem on both sides. A lot of people who are, even if they're aware of the problem, they don't exactly see that they're part of it because they're so close to it. And I think, I think it's because of people like you doing incredible work at the, really the seams of where these two meet is where people can actually come closer together and we can really integrate these two different types of culture into one that can cover all, let's say. Yeah, well, thank you. I completely agree. Yeah. So Every academic and PhD gets to a point where they have to make a very difficult decision of academia or industry. What can you tell them that might help them make that decision? Great question. The first thing I would say is we might as well look at the numbers. You know, the fact is there really aren't a lot of academic positions out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's changed more recently, permanent academic positions, because many universities have moved towards fewer tenured faculty and more temporary positions. But even then, you know, the numbers are very small. If you just think about the ratio, the number of graduates, a typical professor, you know, PhDs, a a professor will graduate in their career, and it only takes one of them to replace them, Mm -hmm. right, when they retire. So that gives you a rough back of the envelope idea of the number. That's the first thing to look at. But you know, it's really shouldn't just be about, oh, I couldn't get a job in academia. What I like to help them understand, and I do this in my workshops also, is industry is a very exciting career. It's something few of us understand, but when you start to learn, well, what it's like to develop products, 
what that's really about, how fun and how rewarding it can be to create solutions mm -hmm. is what you're doing, not just generating knowledge, but to get profit, which is what industry needs. You're creating solutions for people. That is a huge shift in perspective. It's one of the things that the scientists that I've interviewed who work in industry, who have built great careers, really find the most rewarding. They're making a difference. Mm -hmm. Once you realize the thing you are building, working to build, is shipped off to a customer who does something valuable with it, you realize, wow, I'm scaling my value far faster than when I was simply publishing papers. Mm -hmm. And that can be a big part of that that shift. You know, if I think of the end of a two day workshop that I give PhD candidates and we've talked about what industry is like and they see what it's, you know, what, what it's really like and how rewarding it can be, how they can be creative in solving problems and getting some solutions. And that really is a shift in, ah, that can be an exciting place. That's, that's a lot of what I'd want, what I want PhD scientists to understand. It's, it's easy, especially in one of the institutions that doesn't really fully respect industry, you can get a bad perspective of what it's about. Yeah. It'd be real easy to think, I'm taking a big risk by doing this. I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy it. I might regret the change. But when they see it from the outside perspective of people who have been there, mm -hmm. it completely, usually completely shifts their thinking. I mean, some people are much better aligned with an academic career, but, and then that's great, yeah. right? That's, it's a very cool career. I, I don't slight that at all. It's just that there is also this big world out in the private sector that's very rewarding. So understanding those differences, I think as people start to digest what that might be like, I think that makes industry look way more appealing than mm -hmm. they might have previously thought. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think it also really helps to think of it. I, I think as scientists, we are concerned with impact. It's just that there's different ways to define impact and what actually that entails. I think for scientists to be able to take a step back and to really see industry for what it is, minus all of the, let's say, misconceptions they might already have about it, I think they will see that impact is very highly rewarded in industry, perhaps yeah. a bit more than academia as well. There's also a myth of being in academia for too long. When is the best time to leave academia? Is it immediately after your PhD? Should you stick around for a while? Or is there actually a definition for too long when it comes to staying too long in academia? <laughs> well, good question. I don't know if there's a definition of too long. I am known for having fairly strong opinions on that. I believe and I recommend if you really want a career in industry, I suggest you go out there right after your PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be tempting to do a postdoc, but I don't see that as a real benefit in an industry career because, you know, look, if once you have a PhD, you've got more education than most people on the planet. Mm -hmm. And it's time to get out and start learning to play the game. Yep. It's easy to think, well, I need more preparation and you can talk yourself into that. But a lot of times a postdoc is just the easier alternative, mm -hmm. right? Because your advisor can hook you up with somebody or, but you're really not advancing your career in most cases. Now, that is not to say, though, I'll flip that around. That's not to say that there is a too long, because if, say, some of our listeners have done a postdoc, that absolutely does not mean your career can't go forward, mm -hmm. right? It's just a matter of then deciding, okay, what is your story going forward? There will be people you will run into who will think, wow, you spent a long time in academia. Are you sure that you want to come to industry? 
-hmm. Are you sure that you didn't want to be a professor and that didn't work? And so now you're knocking on our door. Well, you just need to think about what is your approach now? And maybe that's true. Maybe though, you just realized, you know, I've learned a lot more about the private sector and I've decided I want to come out and help create solutions. And that's what I'm doing now. I did do a postdoc. Here's what I learned from that. And here are the skills and the strengths that I'm bringing or the knowledge that I'm bringing. And I'm going to make that work. So there's no point of no return or too long or anything, I think. Mm -hmm. But I do advise if you're sure that you want a career in industry, I do suggest you get out there right after your PhD and learn to play the game. Definitely. I mean, and the the best way to learn to play the game is to play the game. And that's true for all sports. (laughs) Regardless, you could stick around practicing in the back for as long as you want. And there's no guarantee you'll be able to perform unless you actually try and test out yourself in the playing field. When it comes to talking about scientific concepts and talking about their research, what is some advice that you could give to scientists to do this more effectively, especially when talking about non-scientists? Well, so that's just what I was going to say is one of the best things you can do for talking to anyone, honestly, is talk to non-scientists about what you do. When I talk about, I mentioned I have uh, seminars and in my workshop talk about how to prepare while you're still in graduate school for a career outside of academia. One of the things I say is talk to as many non-scientists about what you do as you can. Mm -hmm. Because what that does, and I don't mean just, you know, rattle off what you do and then go away, but engage in a real conversation and get feedback. See, what is it that resonates with them? What you're trying to do is figure out how can you help them understand the value of your work. Mm-hmm. There's real value in that. There's there's practice in discussing it, but it helps you identify yourself with what is the value of this? You know, why are tax dollars being spent on the research that I do? Why does anybody care? This is really valuable. And it helps you start to explain things in a bit more of a for for non-scientists, but it also helps you understand why does your work matter to the outside world? That can be a huge difference. So I think that's one of the biggest things. And then, you know, there's some techniques like asking questions about what they do and understand what matters to them. That Mm -hmm. can be also be a great way to help you understand and engage with people outside of your, you know, your research department. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are other people doing? It can feel a little daunting at first, but asking questions is a great way to engage people. And then like I say, learning to describe, to describe what you do to people who don't have the background you do. I mean, that in itself is the art of storytelling, right? And being able to yes. effectively communicate even when the other person doesn't have the background knowledge that you do. And I think it really forces you to get rid of all of the excess and to really boil it down to the core concepts and try to get those across. And I feel like that is something that takes a bit of time, that takes practice, but it's very, very important. It absolutely is. And frankly, so I have a story about this. You mentioned storytelling. That is exactly what it's about. I focus a lot on that. And I actually have, if you want to take the time for it, I have a story that shows, showed me many years ago how valuable that is. I was at, I was at Johns Hopkins University probably seven years ago now, and I was speaking to a group of biomedical engineers. And after my talk, I was milling around and talking to some of them. And I was speaking with a guy named Renjin. And I asked him, so Renjin, what do you do? And he launched into this description, you know, as a physicist, I understood very little of it, right? This is probably the way he would talk if he were at an academic conference, describing Mm -hmm. to someone who knew the field. 
I wasn't picking up any of it. <laughs> and so I paused him and I said, I'm sorry, Renjin, you sound excited about what you're doing, but I'm not picking any of this up. Could you try again? And he stopped and he said, okay, okay. And his, his next description was completely different. He said, you know, sometimes we have to replace people's hearts. We give them a heart transplant. And the current technology is a machine. We put a machine in their chest. I'm working on research that should someday, hopefully, help us grow an artificial heart out of tissue. And I thought, wow, Renjin. And I said, you know, if I were you, when somebody asks you what you do, I would start with something like that. I'm working on research to help grow an artificial heart out of tissue. Mm -hmm. But here's the interesting thing. He got very uncomfortable with that and thought, oof, I'm not sure that's accurate enough. I mean, I'm not growing the heart in my lab. I'm doing one little part and this could take 20 years and we don't even know if it will work. And I said, that's okay. You started with something that grabbed my attention. Mm -hmm. Once I understood what you were doing and why it mattered, now I want to learn all the terminology and understand, you know, what specific element of it you're doing because I'm excited. Mm -hmm. You grabbed my attention with your story and pulled me in. Absolutely. And that really, you know, when it comes to communicating with people who don't work in the same areas as us, which is what a lot of the private sector will be, it really drove home to me the power of saying it in the right way, of telling a story people can understand. Absolutely. I mean, the variations of how you can say one thing, there's so many different ways to try it. But this does go back to our previous point about persuasion and to really look at persuasion as the right kind of storytelling. And yeah. rather than anything else, that would be very beneficial for most scientists to really break out of that mindset. Absolutely. It's unfortunate that we get a tendency to think of both storytelling and persuasion, as you mentioned earlier, as somehow being fake. Either we're trying to lie or exaggerate or something, and that not that is not what it should be. Mm -hmm. We have all known people who do that, and that's where that perception comes from, and that's what we want to stay away from. Scientists, integrity is important to us. Absolutely, you can tell stories, you can persuade and still do it with full integrity. It's simply a matter of thinking what will engage this person and help them see the value, yeah. the real value, mm -hmm. not some pretend value I'm making up. No, not at all. The real value that I see because they don't have my lexicon, then my language, my experience, my background. Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing. That's all it's about. Yeah. But it's very valuable. Oh, thank you so much for that. Moving a bit away from the PhD topic and perhaps a bit more specifically, let's talk about startup founders. What should startup founders, especially those who are spinning off from academia, consider when they launch their ventures? Do you have any specific advice for startup founders? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess two major things. One, focus on the problem. And there are a couple of angles to that. One is, you know, not getting sidetracked by interesting things, but focusing on, you know, what's the customer's problem? What are we trying to accomplish here? But it goes deeper than that. As we know, lots of startups do not succeed. It's a, it, is a, it is a risky venture. It's exciting, but risky. One of the biggest reasons is they don't focus on a real problem. They become infatuated with their technology. And it's, it's essentially a play of this is so cool. If we just get it out in the market, people will see the value mm -hmm. and know what to do with it. I mean, I actually worked in a company that was, you know, 13 years into following that path. And it's part of what really drove home to me. You need to make sure you're solving a problem, a real problem, not just this is interesting. People will find a use for it. That is not usually a path to 
success. Mm -hmm. What is the problem you are solving for their customer and how bad of a problem is it? Will they actually pay enough money to keep your company alive to make a business plan, mm -hmm. uh, business model for your solution? The other thing is getting help from others. You know, that independence we talked about is a tough habit. I've spoken to a lot of scientists, entrepreneurs, and this is the other big thing they say, you know, graduate school teaches me to work alone. It taught me to work alone mm -hmm. and I have to break that habit. It's again, being an independent learner, being persistent, doing it on your own. There's real value in that, but you can't let that be the habit for everything. You have to know when you're up against something and you need to get other help. You need to get somebody who's done it before and knows how to do it. So those are the two biggest problems. I summarize, as, summarize it as focus on the problem mm -hmm. and get help from others. Those are the two biggest things. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I do think that problems come before solutions. And from mm -hmm. some of the startup founders that I've met, they're very much focused on solution first and then figuring out which problem the solution is going to address. And I think to take a yeah. step back and to really look at it for what it is, the problem always should come before the solution. Yeah, and that it, it happens a lot. Be and you know, you get uh, some some savvy uh, scientists who can convince investors to give them money, and they go away, is burn the money, and there's no problem. Mm -hmm. Savvy investors, I've noticed in working in the startup world, savvy investors ask those questions early. What is the problem? Mm -hmm. There's three big ones. What is the problem you are solving for your customer? Mm -hmm. Then they ask them, what is your customer currently doing to solve that problem? Mm -hmm. Because if they, if, and if the answer is, well, nothing yet, we're the first ones out there, there's no competition, that's usually a bad sign that says it's not a real problem. And then the third is, well, what will your customer, your target customer pay you for your solution versus what they're currently doing? Because mm -hmm. they know if, if the founder can't answer those now, there's, it's probably not worth investing in. But as you said, many startups still go forward with that. I like to say that technology infatuation is the siren song of us yep. scientists and engineers, you know, the, from the Greek mythology where we are enamored in the myth with the singing and drive our ships forward and crash into the rocks. Well, it's the same here. We can be enamored with the technology thinking it will be everything. Mm -hmm. And we forget to pay attention to, is there really a problem we're solving? And that can be fatal. Yeah, I think that's definitely worthwhile for everyone to really think about and to really try to understand as best as possible. We're coming close to wrapping up. Perhaps just a small recap from your side, as well as how do you see the future of technology commercialization and product development? How do you, where do you think we need to focus on to have maximum results? Yeah, oh, you know, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing that comes to mind, we've mentioned integrity already in terms of storytelling and persuasion. I will say not only do you not have to sacrifice your integrity to do those things, I think integrity is one of the most important things we need to focus on. We all know, oh boy, I mean, the last five years has shown it's getting harder and harder to know what's real. And with the rise of AI and deep fake technology, I mean, it is I don't know for sure where it's going. Scientists in all aspects of society, scientific rigor, the scientific method, this is part of maintaining that integrity so that to bring it back to technology commercialization and product development, a big part of that is how do customers know what they're getting, what the products, you know, the products actually do what they will say. And, and I use product in a very generic term, could be products or services, devices, lots of things. Mm -hmm. Integrity is the point. 
I think that's important. How do we make sure that we're selling something that really does what it, say it says it does? And the scientist is a key, really important role in that. That's what we signed up for. And you know that's what we were doing in an academic research environment. And we can still do that. We absolutely bring that in the different world of the product development of the private sector. Mm -hmm. It's a different game, but integrity is still just as important, maybe more important than ever. That's a very good point. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, David. It's been a very insightful episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Startup the Science. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and that it sparked your curiosity for science and innovation. Startup the Science is available on all platforms, including LinkedIn, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, and more. Follow Enam and Startup the Science on LinkedIn to connect with other listeners and to keep up with our activities. Tune in next time as we continue to explore further critical topics in the world of science and technology. Until then, stay curious and let's start up the science.